Welcome to This is Type 1, real-life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. I'm Colleen Mitchell, and I've had type 1 diabetes for 23 years. By day, I'm a process analyst in the power industry, and by night, I'm an author, blogger, and virtual assistant. I'm passionate about type 1 diabetes education and showing others that this disease doesn't define me. I'm Jesse Tuggy, and I've had type 1 for 7 years. I love hiking and painting, and I'm looking forward to working as an engineer after college. My diagnosis has inspired me to take control of my future and learn everything I can about it. Each week on the show, we'll talk about real life with type 1 diabetes, bring on cool people with connections to type 1, and above all, encourage you to understand that this disease doesn't have to hold you back. This isn't medical advice. This is life with type 1. Welcome to episode 20 of This is Type 1, real life type 1 diabetes with your hosts, Colleen and Jesse. Today, we're talking with Alexa Brenner, a longtime friend of ours from Panther Camp, who not only has type 1 diabetes, but also has celiac disease, which is another autoimmune condition that's centered around the inability to process gluten. And just a quick reminder for our audience, if you have any questions about type 1 diabetes, please, please leave us a comment or email us at colleen at inspiredforward.com. We will answer listener questions in future episodes. All right, Colleen, you're up with the win of the week. Heck yeah, you are. Woohoo! I am. So I am actually super proud of this win. I had my endocrinologist appointment yesterday and my A1C came back as 5.1%. And as <laughs> Jesse's giving me a shocked look on the camera. So as a quick reminder for everyone listening, A1C is the average measure of blood glucose control over the last three months. And anything below 5.7 is considered non-diabetic. So I'm just astonished that my A1C came down that much in just the last three months from 5.8%, which is where I was kind of hovering for about a year. So you're technically, and we can say this, you're technically not diabetic anymore. Well, based off of A1C, I guess, but my blood sugar has been on kind of a roller coaster today, so I'm still diabetic. But technically, according to your A1C, you're not diabetic, which I just, I love that. I'm so proud of you too. Oh, thank you. I am. It's, it's, that's such an amazing accomplishment, especially like, you know, with the holidays and everything. Like, that's incredible. And like all the stuff you have to deal with, you're such a role, mo- role model to me. Oh, thank you. But I have no idea how it happened. So I have no idea how to maintain it. <laughs> Stress. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So uh, coming down from that wind, Jesse, what's your fail of the week? Okay, so my fail of the week has to do with working, my sensor, and then a low. So at work, I looked at my sensor because it was going off and everything. Apparently, it fell out. I probably bumped it on our counter and stuff because they're about where I put my sensor, you know, that level. And I bumped it, and it, like, moved a little bit. And then an hour later, it said, please change sensor. Sensor disconnected. And I was just like, great I have another two hours left on my shift I have no sensor and I went on break I test my blood sugar I was fine I got home I tested my blood sugar again and it was like 66 and I was exhausted so I ate something really fast and I accidentally put on Netflix and a timer so I watched Netflix until I fell asleep for a little while then my timer went off and then I was I think I thought it was Saturday already and I just turned it off because I don't remember turning it off, but I didn't wake up again to retest to make sure I was, you know, in normal range. So then the next morning I tested my blood sugar and I was 345. (laughs) Yeah, I think I either ate too much or went up too quickly and it just did not end well for me. (laughs) 
So moving on to our hack of the week, last night was my company's annual holiday party. And for these kinds of things, I set my quote unquote, eight dinner basal profile since my blood sugar tends to go up after eating in the evening, even if there aren't any carbs in what I eat. So Tim, my husband, said something on the way home that made perfect sense to me, and I hadn't thought of it before. So generally, my basal rate at night is lower than during the day, which makes sense because I'm asleep. But when I stay up late, my number also goes up because I'm awake. So if you're having problems with late night blood sugars, then it might be a good idea to set a basal profile for staying up late so that your basal rates remain higher while you're awake to compensate for that rise. So I'm going to create a new basal profile for stay up late and maybe a combo one where I stay up late plus eight dinner just to try to make sure my blood sugars don't go up at night, which is really annoying. All right. Welcome to the show, Alexa. Thanks for coming on. Hi. Hello. So we're just going to start off with asking the question, how long have you had type 1 diabetes? And if you don't mind, can you tell us your diagnosis story? Yeah. So my diagnosis story is actually not my story. It's my mom's. I am 23. I've had diabetes for 22 years. And it was September, so it was like the start of flu season. And my mom was like, oh, she's just, she's just not feeling well. She's just not feeling well. Um, they took me to the doctor. They said, she probably just has the flu. She'll be fine just keep her hydrated. And my parents realized something was really wrong when I would wake up. I'd come downstairs and then I'd fall back to sleep on the on our living room floor because I was full of energy as a child. And then there was just like no energy anymore. And my parents took me to the doctor. They took me to the hospital because they were like, this is not right. Something's really wrong. And I, I guess I just like that my dad must have put, he said he pieced it together like right before they came in and were like, oh, she's got diabetes. Here's some insulin. Good luck. <laughs> so, you know, pretty common, I guess, for when kids are diagnosed that young. But I really just, you know, just saying good luck. It, we were there for four days. Um, I think the first thing they told my parents, which has always stuck with me, is that 75% of couples who have a child that has diabetes get divorced. Which I think is really, I think it's really interesting. I mean, they're divorced now, but they didn't divorce when I was a kid. And I, I just think it, like, that's something that they told them. They just told, they gave them a lot of, like, really good information, but also a lot of really terrible information. So, yeah, it's weird. That's really interesting, because I think then out of the three of us, I'm the only one who had parents that did not divorce. I guess, yeah, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, mine divorced two years after my diagnosis. I think it's really interesting with parents just because, you know, people are different in general, but then you have, you add something as complicated as a kid who has a chronic illness, who doesn't, especially one who can't take care of themselves because they're a year old and two people want to go in very different directions with it. And, you know, I think it must end up causing a lot of conflict, but I wouldn't know. I'm not a parent of a kid with diabetes, so... Well, neither are either of us, so we've all got that going for us. So what role has diabetes played in your life? Like, what have you done because of it, or what haven't you done because of it? I think, I, I always, you know, they say diabetes doesn't define you. You shouldn't let it define you. I think it's weird as someone who was diagnosed so young, like, it's always been a part of my life. It's not something that I ever recognized a life without, and I, I mean, I did camp a time at U2. I also go to a conference in Orlando every year, um, and I've been doing that since I was nine. I don't think it's done anything, like, 
crazy weird. I think I, I'm more mature than people I, my own age. And I think that's a common thing that we all have felt, but I definitely, I don't think it's changed my life in, in a way that like, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know how to answer that question because I don't know anything else. I guess that's fair. Cause I kind of have the same thing since I was diagnosed at two and I don't really know anything else either. What's your favorite thing about having type one diabetes? I eat a lot of really good snacks. That's like the best part. No, I mean, I met a lot of really cool people. I feel like I know my body better than most people know their bodies. And I'm very, like, I trust, I trust myself a lot more than I think people do. But I also, I I just, I mean, the the low snacks are pretty, that is pretty top tier. I like um, that you said, you know, your body better than most people know their bodies because that's the same for me. Whenever I go into my chiropractor, there's this one spot on my shoulder that I can always feel something and he always gets it like the very last crack. I make him put his like hand there. And then once he cracks it, he's like, man, you know your body really well. I'm like, I know. (laughs) So I think it's funny that you also think that diabetes has made you more aware of your body. Yeah, absolutely. So since low snacks are your favorite thing about diabetes, what's your least favorite thing? My least favorite thing is catching my pump site on a drawer handle or on a door or on my pants or like when you pull up your pants and you button your pants and you get your tubing wrapped around the button of your pant. Like it's mostly just the tubing situation. That's it. Also, I have like all the sticky adhesive like gunk still on my body because I'm lazy and don't get the, like the goo gone for skin. Although I probably could use regular Goo Gone now that I think about it. Probably won't. I won't. Don't do or that. Or you could Not just use soap. No medical advice. Yeah. Okay. Yes. I know. <laughs> I do use soap. I have a loofah. I work at a soap store. Like, I know. So part of the reason we brought you on today is because you also have celiac disease. So can you kind of explain what celiac is for our audience or what it means? Yeah. So celiac is just like, diabetes in the sense that your immune system sees something that is totally fine for your body as a problem. So I can't eat gluten because my body's like, hey, that's really bad for you. And my immune system attacks it. And so then there's like an inflammatory response. And then it's mostly digestive. So I won't go into like graphic detail about what, what is really terrible, but it's just like not a good time. Well, when did you learn that you had celiac disease? So I figured it out when I was 12, um, and it took me a while to get anybody to listen to the, like, the actual, I have celiac, that I was, I was convinced. Um, I was in, I was going into my endocrinologist, and I was saying, hey, there's, like, please, please, something's wrong, and my blood sugars were really high all the time, and I didn't quite know why, and I felt really crappy all the time. I, I, like, just tired all the time. And I, but I was never full because my body wasn't absorbing enough nutrients because when, when you have celiac, your small intestine essentially breaks down the parts of your small intestine that grab nutrients start to break down. So I wasn't full and I felt terrible and I was always bloated and always like my, I gained a ton of weight because my body was like, was thinking, oh, she's starving. So we have to hold on to everything. And so I just, I like, nothing was right. My head. My, I had a lot of brain fog and I just knew that it had to be diet related because everything else I was doing was fine. And so finally my 
endocrinologist at the time, she, she just said, fine, you know what, whatever, we'll test you and it's nothing's going to come back and you're going to, then you're going to have to like face that it's something else and you all this sort of stuff. And then it came back that like my, the antibodies were off the charts. Like I, I had to have an upper GI tract endoscopy where they stick like a, a camera down your stomach and upper and small intestine. And there were like ulcers and holes and it was just, it was a war zone in there. And they were like, oh, she wasn't kidding. So a quick follow-up question. Did you Google, like, how did you find out what the symptoms were for celiac disease? So I was at a conference. I was at like a regional conference here in Seattle for the, the children's diabetes conference that I go to in Florida. And they were just, they just like mentioned it briefly. And then as you know, all 12 years old, I went on a Dr. Google rampage, which I don't ever recommend for literally anything else. But I was like, oh my God every time I eat pasta, I kind of want to die. And it, 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 it turned out to be right. I mean, but it just, it's, it's hard to, and when I was diagnosed, it was like right before being, having celiac and being gluten-free was a thing. It, it was really hard to get diagnoses and really hard to get people to like test you for it. But now I guess every year for like the blood testing that they have people do with diabetes, they throw a celiac panel in there, which is important and should happen because it's, you know, if you don't have, if you're not testing, you're not going to find out. And a lot of times people don't show symptoms as strongly as I was showing symptoms. So they can eat gluten for years and it destroys your gut if you have celiac and you eat gluten. So, and it, it, you know, it can have other long-term effects. So they, they're wanting to catch it before it becomes a problem in people. So is it more common for type 1 diabetics to also have celiac nowadays? Because I know not just you with um, type 1 and celiac, but also a lady from my home church. And she's in her 60s. The last statistic that I saw, heard, read, it's 25% of people with type 1 will also develop celiac at some point in their life. And I think it's another one of those things that, like, once you have one autoimmune disorder, others tend to pop up. I don't want that. How about no? I mean, I wish I, I mean, could wave my magic gluten-free wand and make it so you can't. Well, I mean, I just recently found out that autoimmune runs in my family. So not only does it make more sense now that I have type 1, but I really don't want to get celiac disease, even though it probably wouldn't affect me as much because I eat low-carb anyway. Yeah. So kind of segueing from that, what is your diet like since you don't have gluten in it? My diet is pretty normal. Like, I mean, I still eat bread, even though a lot of the gluten-free bread is really crappy. Um, I do love a good sandwich every once in a while. I I do try to eat more protein just because I feel better and I know that it's a safer option. But you still have to, you have to check everything because sometimes they put fillers in like ground beef and it, it makes you aware of like the food industry a lot more. Um, I can't eat blue cheese because blue cheese has gluten in it. Some types of wine and other alcohols are fermented with with like a wheat product. So I yeah I don't drink beer. So there's it's it's just you have to be careful and of what you're what you're putting in your body. I can there's a gluten free substitute for almost anything. I have yet to have a decent gluten free bagel. But, you know, we'll, we'll make it happen. Well, Tim has a good bagel recipe. I'm not sure if it's uh, 
gluten-free, but it probably is because it's just almond flour and all that. If it's almond flour, then it is. I've made bagels before and they still weren't that good, so. <laughs> I think they're good, but I'm also more on the low-carb track, so I don't crave the the bagel-y flavor anymore. Fair, yeah. I don't like, I don't necessarily crave a bagel, but every once in a while, I'm just like, I would really like a good bagel and cream cheese sandwich, just like I did when I was a child. Awesome. So what are things that are different for you dealing with both celiac and type 1 diabetes? So it's, it's weird because they're two very separate things, but they're linked based on diet, right? So gluten-free food is a lot higher carb. Like a, I, I can have a plate of pasta with a normal serving of pasta and it's like 95 carbs, like a crazy amount of, cause the gluten-free grains for some reason are higher carb, like corn, rice, potato starch or potatoes are a lot starchier. And so they absorb differently and you give yourself insulin for them differently. I also, like if I do accidentally eat gluten, my blood sugars are a little harder to maintain because well, A, I feel terrible. And B, I think it's just the inflammatory response. You know, when you're, when your body is not doing well, your blood sugars don't do well. Um, the big one was when I went to college and I was eating dorm food, I had to really, really be careful and figure out what I could eat, where I could eat, why things had you know which things they were using that had gluten in them and they have like the ingredients list but sometimes the ingredients list would say oh gluten-free and the soup would have like the little gf next to it and then in the ingredient like allergen alerts it would be like wheat milk soy um okay so which do i believe so it was a lot of trial and error through college and is it a lot of trial and error now that there's a lot more quote gluten-free products out there um, less so. Mostly the now the trial and error is taste. <laughs> um, but the the trial and error was a lot of when other people are preparing your food. So going to restaurants can be a little bit of a pain because sometimes you'll look at a waiter and be like, oh yeah, I have celiac, so I don't eat gluten. And they'll just like roll their eyes like, oh great, a great, a hipster. Wonderful. Love that. But it, you know, you're you're trying to legitimize your food issues and a lot of people talk about how they're like, oh, you're gluten-free, ha, ha, ha. And it's like, no. And I like when people go to restaurants and say that they're gluten-free, even if they don't need to eat gluten-free, because it makes having a gluten-free menu more normal. But at the same time, it's also like going out to eat is a pain in the butt. And grocery shopping is fun, though, because now that I live by myself, I get to grocery shop for myself and pick out exactly what I want to eat and what I think are the best gluten-free brands, so... Plus, now that this gluten-free kind of fad has taken off, even though it shouldn't really be a fad, you have an entire aisle dedicated to gluten-free products. Not even just an aisle anymore. There are some stores that it's just like integrated in there. So I can like shop the grocery store like a regular person instead of just in my little, you know, two by two aisle. See, I'm waiting for that trend to take off for low carb. <laughs> It'll get there. I was at, I went out for breakfast this morning and there was like a, a low carb keto Oreo thing at the bakery that I was at. So you're going to have to tell me the name of that bakery. Cause I might want to try that. Okay. I will. I will text it to you. So over the years, um, how have you changed your own kind of treatment and care regimen since you were diagnosed so young as a type one and then 12 as a celiac and now you're an adult. So over the years, you've obviously gone through diet changes, medication changes, 
exercise? Like how do you, would you, how you reduce your stress? So can you talk about kind of what's changed between then and now? Yeah. So, I mean, I have always, I was always a very like independent, willful child and that I, I asked for a lot of control when I was growing up and I did pretty well with it. I, when I was probably around when I was 12 or 13, I only had, I was only had ever had like the one instance of going back into the hospital with TKA because I had just like burnt out and given up. I think something that people don't talk about is that like the mental side of having type one and celiac. Like I had, I struggled a lot with eating in high school and feeling like I shouldn't be eating and that I like kind of like disordered eating of, well, if I'm hungry, that means I'm doing something right. And so I had to learn to like eat intuitively and eat what my body wants and that there's no such thing as bad food and good food. There's only food that's nutritionally dense and food that's not nutritionally dense. And so I think I make, I like being an adult because I can make those choices for myself and I don't feel like I have to clear them with anybody. Nobody's watching me eat except me. I do miss living at home because my dad cooked for me all the time. And so I, I do love a good home cooked meal, but we live on opposite sides of the country now. So he wouldn't even be able to cook for me if I lived at home. I will attest that your dad is an amazing cook. Oh, I miss the food so His much. food is so good. Yeah. Big fan. Yeah. So what was one of your biggest challenges growing up with just diabetes? So like before you were 12 and stuff. I, I always felt like I had, I felt like I grew up a lot faster than I should have. Like no child should be panicking about the price of their diabetes supplies. Like no child needs to freak out about, you know, is there going to be food that I can eat at this birthday party? I was, I didn't go on my first like solo sleepover until I was 12. I, there was a lot of like, a lot of stuff that happened when I was growing up that no kid should have to think about. And I think that, I mean, as an adult, it doesn't affect me. Also, I've done a lot of therapy, so it doesn't affect me the way it did when I was like 19. But I just think that the biggest challenge was like growing up in general, because it's so abnormal and so not what everybody else is going through. And there, I didn't really have any other kids when I went to school that had diabetes that wanted to talk about it. Um, there was another girl in my school who has type 1, and she didn't want people to know. She didn't want anybody to know that she had type 1. So it was rough. What was the biggest thing that you've learned, like life lessons that you can take away from both being diabetic and celiac? That knowing what you need and knowing what you want is not a bad thing. I have told people, like I tell people when I need something, if I need an extra break at work, I tell them I need an extra break. If I, like I don't feel bad requesting a whole sick day to go for my endocrinology appointments because sometimes they're emotionally draining and I just want to go lie in bed and watch a movie afterwards because it, diabetes isn't just your physical health, it's your mental health too and you have to take care of all of it. And Asking for what you need and asking for what you want is not something that you should ever be ashamed of or afraid of doing. Preach. Yeah, right? So when you started working and, you know, joined the workforce and everything, what was one of the biggest challenges that you had integrating your diabetic life and celiac life with, you know, working and finding enough time and stuff like that? 
I think it's meal prepping for work. So I'm not just eating whatever's left over in the break room or because I, I mean, people in my office will do that all the time. Like, Oh, I forgot my lunch or I didn't make lunch or I didn't have leftovers or whatever the reason is. Like I can't do that. It's just not something I'm able to do because I don't know the carb count and I don't know what's in it or just figuring out like when I need to eat so I don't tank when I'm at work. Just easy stuff. So what advice do you have for newly diagnosed type one diabetics and their parents? Um, therapy. I mean, I love that answer. Therapy because it's so draining and it could have saved so many years of conflict with my parents of me hating them because they had to take care of me. And if they didn't take care of me, I'd die. Like I had to be, and, but they were, and I knew that they were doing it because they loved me and they didn't want me to, you know, die. But I also, there was, I, a therapist is a neutral third party who's able to help you work through your stuff. And so much stuff comes up and I just, I think therapy is so important as even, even if you don't feel like you need it, it helps w- with a lot of the like internalized shame that we feel. Cause you know, technically like it falls under disabilities, right? Because our bodies don't work the way they're supposed to. And it, it's just like talking it out with a person who went to school to talk out your stuff with you is so much more valuable than anything that I, like any piece of, of technology that I could ever own or any piece of, of information about diabetes that I could know because you kind of forget about your mental health when you're taking care of your physical health. And that's bad. I like that answer. So since we were also talking about celiac, do you have any advice for type 1 diabetics who may be gluten intolerant or undiagnosed celiac, or maybe they're a newly diagnosed celiac? Um, go to the grocery store when you're not hungry and look through the gluten-free aisles because there's a lot of like really good substitutes and alternatives. Learning to read labels is really important when you have diabetes anyways, but like really learning to read labels and remembering what what preservatives and additives are gluten-free. Luckily, a lot of things now will say contains gluten. Um, and remembering that when you, if you think you have celiac, going gluten-free right away is not the way to get a diagnosis. It's you have to keep eating gluten until you can get the blood panel done. Because if you're not eating gluten, it's not going to show up in your antibodies. So you have to eat it. And so it's like surviving that three weeks where you just have to eat it is really rough. But it, I mean... And you can, you can figure out how to make a, an alternative and, and you learn how to be crafty in the kitchen and all kinds of good stuff like that. All right. Last question. Well, kind of combo question. Do you have any last words of wisdom for our listeners and where can listeners find you online if they want to connect? Words of wisdom. I think words of wisdom is that yes, your care team cares about you and they want you to do well, um, but they can't help you if you can't help yourself. So you need to tell people when things don't feel right, when something is wrong and you, you have to be able to get in there and tell whether it's a parent, whether it's a spouse, whether it's a friend, whether it's a social worker or the MA or whomever is in you're comfortable with in your care team to tell them what's going on. Like somebody has to know if you can't put words to it yourself, because that's the best way to get the best care for you. And if people want to find me on social media, Alexa S. Brenner on Instagram. And then on Twitter, it's to Alexa underscore Brenner. I'm very funny on Twitter. 
Okay, we will include both of those links to you in the show notes so that people can cool. find you and reach out. Well, thank you for coming on. It's been great talking to you about this. It's been fun to hang out with you two. <laughs> Moving on to diabetes in the news this week, we recently found out that the FDA announced the approval of the Control IQ hybrid closed loop system of the Tandem Diabetes Care. So the Control IQ is something that we've talked about before on this podcast. You might not remember, you might, but this is big news for those who use the tandem pumps. I don't, but it's, it's huge even for if you don't use the tandems. It means that they'll finally have the technology that automates insulin delivery for predicted highs as well as suspend your insulin for predicted lows. So I'm super excited for this. And when I found out this news, which announced on December 13th, I shared it on the podcast Facebook page was just like, yes, finally. And according to the email I got from Tandem, they're going to roll out the software updates uh, starting in January 2020. So I'm hoping that mine will come very, very soon. But we have an excerpt from Beyond Type 1 that we're going to read. Quote, features of the algorithm include automated insulin correction boluses for high blood sugars, in addition to basal rate modulation, a dedicated hypoglycemia safety system like that of basal IQ, and gradually intensified control overnight to reach 110 to 120 MGDL by morning. The system is designed to gradually improve time and range. No other hybrid closed-loop system has offered automatic correction boluses or been able to bypass finger stick calibrations, end quote. And I'm just like so in love with this paragraph because being 110 to 120 when you wake up is just amazing. And we've talked before about time and range, which is a really good complementary metric with A1C. And I was talking with Alexa before we started recording that part of the reason I, my A1C has dropped down to 5.1% is probably because of how good my time and range is. And I would just like to add that Medtronic also has something similar to this called auto mode, which I am on. It's the same thing. It's the same concept as, you know, all this keeping you in range, you know, automating your boluses, automating your basal rate. And I just want to say that it's awesome. And if you want to get on board with either of the two programs, definitely do it and definitely consider it because it saves you a lot of time. It saves you a lot of energy and it takes a lot of stress out of your day from worrying about not knowing what your blood sugar is. Absolutely. So Jesse, what is our question for the audience this week? Our question for the audience this week is, do you have celiac disease or are you gluten intolerant? And what have you found that keeps you better able to take care of yourself with celiac disease? So obviously we can't answer that question ourselves because we don't have celiac, but Alexa does. And so she did answer basically this question for us. So we would like to know, do you have celiac and what works for you? And that is it for this episode of This is Type 1. Thank you so much to Alexa Brenner for coming on to give us the rundown on how celiac and type 1 diabetes work together, even if it's working together for bad. Remember, if you want to connect with Alexa, you can find her on Instagram at Alexa S. Brenner or on Twitter at 2, the number 2, Alexa underscore Brenner. And those will both be linked in the show notes. And you can find the show notes at inspiredforward.com slash episode 20. And if you have an idea for an upcoming episode, please leave us a comment or send an email. You can get straight to our podcast page by going to thisistype1.com. Our music is by Joseph McDade, and our audio wizard is my husband, Tim. I'm on all social media as at Inspired Forward, and our email is colleen at inspiredforward.com. And I'm on Instagram as at jj underscore crystal kat. Please feel free to send any questions or comments you have about type 1 diabetes or about the show. 
Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, please share it with your friends, especially if any celiac friends you have, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts since that helps other people find us. And be sure to listen next week when we talk about setting diabetes goals as we're almost to 2020 and diabetes care should definitely be part of your New Year's resolutions or your plan for the next year. Remember, you control your diabetes. It doesn't control you. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.